PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. Having your position supported by evidence is woefully inadequate for policy change. Most of these patients were achieving their goals in therapy. It was being more cost-effective. It's crucial that chapters consciously focus on the politics. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, Direct Consumer Access to Physical Therapy. In this discussion, Dr. Michael Shoemaker talks about his PTJ research report addressing the most recent attempt to pass direct access legislation in Michigan. Joining him are Rick Goenda, president of the APTA section on health policy and administration and Angela Chastine, Associate Director of State Government Affairs at APTA. And now, our moderator, PTJ Editorial Board Member, Dr. Linda Resnick. Welcome. My name is Linda Resnick. I'm delighted to be leading this PTJ podcast discussion on direct consumer access to physical therapy in Michigan, Challenges to Policy Adoption. Today, we are discussing the article by the same name, written by Dr. Michael Shoemaker and published in PTJ. Consumers have direct access to physical therapy in 46 states. Michigan is one of only four states that continue to require a physician prescription or referral prior to accessing care of a physical therapist. Although Michigan has permitted physical therapists to evaluate, educate, and consult without a prescription since 1987, the state still requires a prescription prior to treatment. There have now been three attempts to remove the physician prescription requirement during legislative sessions in 2001 and 2, 2003 and 4, and 2005-6. In his policy analysis of these attempts to change the Michigan law, Michael Shoemaker provides insight into the complex process of policy, development, adoption, and implementation, and presents evidence of direct access's impact on access, cost, and quality of physical therapy services. So to begin, I'd like to introduce the three participants who have joined us to discuss this topic. First, we have the author, Dr. Michael Shoemaker. Thank you for inviting me to participate. Dr. Shoemaker is Assistant Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Grand Valley State University. He is currently the Legislative Director of the Michigan Physical Therapy Association. Dr. Shoemaker is a Ph.D. candidate at Western Michigan University, and the paper we are discussing today was completed in partial fulfillment of this degree. We also have Rick Gwenda with us. Rick is founder and president of Gwenda Seminars and Consulting, Inc. He is current president of the Section on Health Policy and Administration of the American Physical Therapy Association. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Also joining us is Angela Chastain. Angela is Associate Director of State Government Affairs at the American Physical Therapy Association. She works with APTA state chapters to advance APTA's legislative priorities on the state level. Thanks, Linda. I'm happy to be with you today. So let's just jump right into the discussion. Dr. Shoemaker, let's begin with you. Can you tell us about policy analysis? 
Policy analysis is similar to any research endeavor, except that the phenomenon under study is policy development, adoption, or implementation. And the idea is to utilize a defined method, theory, or framework that guides the analysis to provide assurance that the conclusions drawn from the analysis and the available data were indeed legitimate. Okay. Although 46 other states have direct access, only 17 states have unrestricted direct access. What other types of policy changes are needed across the country in terms of federal and state legislation? And I'll open this to anyone who'd like to answer. Well, there really is a spectrum in terms of direct access provisions in state physical therapy practice acts, from some that are less restrictive to others that are really significantly more burdensome on the patient and the provider. So the goal in those states with what we would call restricted or limited direct access is to remove or at the very least to modify those burdensome provisions. Now, on the federal side, the federal health care reform legislation, which we refer to as the Affordable Care Act, provided a potential opening for direct access in the Medicare and the Medicaid programs. That legislation established a new federal agency, which is called the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation within CMS. And the purpose of that agency is to research and develop innovative payment and care delivery models to improve quality and reduce costs in the Medicare and Medicaid programs. Now, that provision of that federal health care reform law includes examples of the types of models this new agency has the authority to develop and to test, and it specifically mentions models that would promote greater efficiencies and access to outpatient physical therapy services, which do not require a physician referral. So that's another opportunity for direct access in the Medicare and Medicaid programs, and APTA is exploring opportunities with this new agency. I think this is an appropriate point to clarify direct access at the federal level versus direct access at the state level. At the federal level, we're talking about legislation that has to do with payment policy. However, at the state level, we're talking about regulation of health professions and scope of practice. That's a very important distinction, and I'm glad you made it. In your paper, you spoke about some of the major points of control within the legislative process that influence the legislative agenda and the disposition of these bills. What are some of the major factors that come into play when adopting or trying to adopt a change in law or policy? The first potential barrier that legislation would encounter is that of the committee chair. So when a bill gets introduced to a chamber, either the Senate or the House, it gets referred to a committee that has more specialized knowledge and experience in dealing with such issues. And so direct access is typically referred to a health policy committee. And the committee chair ultimately has a considerable amount of power in deciding which legislation will be discussed and when, and whether or not a vote is even taken on an issue. And while that committee chair is potentially accountable to other leaders within their caucus within that chamber, there's a considerable amount of discretion that they have with regard to what legislation is important and which legislation is suitable to their political party. The next potential barrier then is the Speaker of the House or a majority floor leader in the Senate. They also then have considerable control over what legislation is heard and voted on. And oftentimes there's a number of bills that will at the end of a legislative session die and not ever come to a vote for one reason or another, and what makes it difficult with a policy analysis that oftentimes many of those reasons aren't documented. And then should your bill be taken up for a vote within a chamber, 
Additional barriers exist. There may be conflicts between the House and the Senate that might impact whether a bill, if it passes in one chamber, may not be heard or may be substantially modified by another chamber. And then, of course, ultimately, the governor at a state level needs to sign a bill and a governor's preferences for whether or not they support a particular bill is also another potential point of control, though I'm not sure that with regard to direct access, the governor's role has had a substantial impact in the outcome. It was striking to me to learn that the third attempt to pass direct access legislation in Michigan made less legislative process than the almost successful first attempt despite the growing body of evidence in favor of safety and cost-effectiveness of direct access. So I wanted to talk now about some of the misperceptions about direct access and two of the major factors that were raised in your analysis related to cost and safety. There is general concern that direct access would increase cost to insurance companies. What is the evidence? This is, Rick, uh, I mean, there's a difference between having direct access state practice act-wise versus the insurance company also recognizing the direct access and reimbursing for physical therapy services. In fact, there was a recent study just published in the journal Health Services Research in September 2011 where the authors of the study went back and did a retrospective study looking at five years' worth of claims from 2003 through 2007, and they actually found that the self-referred patients had fewer physical therapy visits, 86% of physician-referred, and a lower allowable amount, 87 cents for every $1 a physician referred during the episode of care. And there have been previous studies that actually showed self-referred patients where direct access was available, actually the cost of service was lower. You know, even though under Medicare we have not yet achieved direct access, something we did achieve back in 2006 was a change in how long the certification would be valid for it. Because at one time, the Medicare program actually had physical occupational speech language pathologists recertifying every 30 days. Well, that did switch at one point to we could go up to 60 days for the initial plan of care and every 30 days thereafter. Well, in January 1st, 2008, they did switch the certification process now up to 90 days because they did find that about 75% of the Medicare patients receiving outpatient therapy services actually finished most of the therapy within the initial 30 days. So even though we don't have, quote, direct access under Medicare, I do think CMS, with the data they do collect, for them to go and allow us to go up to 90 days to certify a plan of care shows that most of these patients were achieving their goals in therapy. It was being more cost-effective, and they kind of loosened the reins, so to speak, and let us go up to 90 days for that initial plan of care. This is Mike. And then there's a handful of other studies that have looked at direct access and its impact on cost in other countries. Unfortunately, with regard to the data in the United States, there aren't a large number of peer-reviewed studies that have examined that. But I think despite the limited number of studies that exist, what's clear is that direct access certainly does not result in increased cost. We could have a debate about whether or not direct access substantially reduces cost, but I think it's clear that the concern for increased cost just doesn't exist. I'd like to talk about some of the other concerns that we've heard legislators raise about direct access and physical therapists. How are physical therapists seen from a legislator's point of view? I think two things emerge as you discover how legislators view physical therapy. 
first is that they view physical therapy as being somewhere within the traditional hierarchical roles in healthcare with the physician at the top and then the physical therapist being something other than the physician. And there is a deference to the physician, and certainly when physician groups warn of potential harm because the public health code exists exclusively to protect the public. So the next thing that they start to then realize is that this is, at least from the perspective of the opponents of such legislation, the turf battle. Dentists and dental hygienists, nurse practitioners and physicians, chiropractors and physicians, chiropractors and physical therapists, uh, nurse midwives, there's all these different disciplines that are competing for a marketplace, and they're trying to utilize the public health code in part to their own advantage, whether it's legitimate, supported by evidence or not, that varies from case to case. But legislators in general have some skepticism about these turf battles among health professions, and I think it's difficult to help them see past that and really see the actual benefit to the public of proposed policies, including direct access. Yeah, and that's very true, not just in Michigan, but across the country in just about every state legislature. There is a certain amount of skepticism whenever a professional organization brings forth legislation to make a change to their own individual scope of practice, and it very well may be merited, the change that's being proposed, but as Mike said, there does tend to be that level of skepticism, and legislators are political beings, and they're hesitant to wade into any type of a really contentious issue that is potentially going to leave one side or the other unhappy, and so there can be a hesitance to want to wade into that type of argument. So what are some of the lessons that we as a profession can learn from Michigan's experience? I think three major lessons. Uh, And the first is being right or being justified or having your position supported by evidence is woefully inadequate for policy change. It's a necessary start, but being right in and of itself does not lead to policy adoption. Along with that is then knowing how to skillfully negotiate the process and try to negotiate the barriers and to understand what the legislative environment is. And for that, I don't think it can be understated the role and importance of the lobbyists to help organizations understand the landscape and navigate the landscape because it is fraught with pitfalls. The third lesson that I learned from this paper was that the will of the people has to be made known to legislators. They need to feel that it's not a turf battle, that this is something that the public wants, that the consumer wants. And I think making that message clear to legislators is perhaps the missing ingredient in many legislative efforts. This is Rick, and I also think we need to work with insurance companies as well, and not just the legislators. And what I mean by that is if we can get the insurance companies to understand the benefits of direct access in terms of a lower cost for them, but also improved access to their patients, I think that would also help us as we go for complete direct access in all 50 states. Let me ask Angela, can you speak to what types of lessons are in this policy analysis for APTA and APTA's legislative efforts for direct access? Absolutely. It's crucial that chapters consciously focus on the politics 
it can't just be an afterthought. So that means consciously and strategically building relationships with legislators and not just between chapter leadership and legislators, but it really has to be from all levels of the membership. And the relationships have to be between constituent and legislator. It's very, very important. Legislators really want to hear from their own constituents. It involves developing a strong political action committee. I know Mike mentioned in his paper, a political action committee doesn't necessarily mean that it's a quid pro quo. You're exchanging money for a particular policy outcome, but really it's about additional opportunities to talk to legislators and interact with them and make sure that you're getting your message across to them. I once heard a long-serving congressional staffer, I was at a professional development program, and I heard her talk about the three Ps of the congressional legislative process, and I think it also applies on the state level. And the three Ps of that process are policy, politics, and procedure. And she said that policy is usually the last consideration and the first thing to get shoved aside. So as Mike was saying earlier, you can go forth with a sound public policy initiative and great arguments to support it, but ultimately, policy is the first thing that's going to go out the window if there is pressure between the policy, the politics, and the procedure. The politics side of the three Ps also involves having a good lobbyist, and all APTA chapters hire lobbyists on a contract basis, and the lobbyist is really the expert on the ground there in the state capitol in terms of what those political relationships are between legislators, between the legislative leadership and the other members, between the two chambers, between the minority and the majority. So it's a very important piece of that puzzle. And then the second thing is paying more attention to the procedure. And again, this is where the lobbyist is really important because the legislative procedure can be a little bit different from state to state. And so knowing what procedural pathway through the legislature sets up the best chance for success and the least amount of resistance is very important and needs a lot of consideration. And I'm going to end there. Well, before we wrap up this conversation, would you like to make some brief closing remarks or observations on the discussion that we've had today? Can I talk just very briefly about a couple of things that APTA is doing on direct access on the state level? Okay. Direct access is, of course, a part of APTA's strategic plan, and one of the strategic outcomes of that plan over the next year or two is that policy barriers to patient and client access to physical therapy services will be reduced and, where possible, eliminated. And this includes bringing the number of states with direct access to at least evaluation to 50. We still have Indiana and Alabama in which a physical therapist cannot perform an evaluation without a referral. The goal is also by 2013 to enact legislation in two additional states of those 29 with restrictions on direct access to pass legislation that will at the very least modify or ideally eliminate those restrictions on direct access. Rick, do you have final remarks? Uh, Probably one of my frustrations is when we have physical therapists that testify in front of these committees against direct access because either they do not feel comfortable evaluating and or treating a patient that has not been seen by a physician before being referred to physical therapy, or perhaps they work in a physician-owned physical therapy clinic. I think one of the misunderstandings out there is just because we may have direct access in our state 
does not mean that you have to evaluate and treat that person without them seeing a physician. If, as you get into that evaluation, if you feel something's going on that you're not comfortable with or something unknown, then part of direct access, part of being a professional, is referring them back to their physician or other healthcare practitioner. This is Mike. I, I think the most frustrating part of any direct access movement for physical therapists and physical therapist assistants is knowing the evidence and knowing that the arguments made by the opposition are unsupported by evidence and are generally without merit. And it's the feeling that despite having a legitimate argument and supporting evidence, that legislation is very slow to move forward. But despite this frustration, I think it's absolutely critical that every physical therapist and physical therapist assistant get involved with this effort because, again, being right doesn't move legislation forward. What moves legislation forward is making your voice heard, and that's democracy. I think we need to overcome that frustration and use it as motivation to be involved. Well, that's a great way to end this conversation. And in closing, I want to thank each of you for participating in the discussion. So thank you very much. Send us your comments or suggestions about this podcast via email, ptj at scienceaudio.net, or voicemail, 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening.